0: Welcome to the Possibility Action Network Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, a.k.a. Possibility Man. We're committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Today, our guest is Dr. Tommy Watson. He's a leading authority on resilience, change, motivation, and leadership. He has a true rags-to-riches story. Against the odds, he found football in high school and eventually won a college football scholarship. Known as Dr. Inspiration, he travels around the world sharing his message of the resilience of champions. Dr. Inspiration, welcome to the show today. Dr. Middleton, great job with that intro. I appreciate you having me. It's an honor to be on. Oh, thank you so much. Hey, look here, I know you grew up in Five Points in Denver, Colorado. Take yeah. us back and tell us about growing up in Five Points.
1: Yeah, again, uh, it's a pleasure and honor to be on with you, Dr. Milton. You know, Five, five Points in Denver, Colorado is the first Black neighborhood in the history of Colorado. Mm-hmm. So its origins go back until the 1800s. Um, you had Madam C.J. Walker. She grew up there, but she was lived there, you know, for a period of time. Her brother was there. Uh, so, so great, great place, you know, in the 60s. Uh, 50s and 60s, it was known as the Harlem of the West. So it was a thriving black community where you had a lot of action going on. And then the 70s came around where um, Five Points then became a place where <clears throat> you had a lot of drugs. Um, and my parents, um, you know, growing up in that situation, they ended up became becoming heroin addicts and shoplifters. So um, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, I was growing up, to, you know, parents who were drug addicts, shoplifters, and uh, by the time I finished high school, my mother and father had been arrested a total of 121 times. So as you can imagine, having your parents been incarcerated that many times caused a lot of disruption from your life. So, you know, as kids, my siblings and I there's six of us, Dr. Milton, we've never all lived together. grown up as kids, um, been in different foster homes, crisis centers, motel rooms, living with different family and friends. Uh, I met my oldest brother by pure coincidence in a foster home in second grade, where he was visiting with a uh, his his uh, adopted mother, um, my two siblings have to remember him, you know, um, tried to, and then in the eighties and five points, when the Crips and Bloods were being run out of LA, they migrated to Denver, Colorado. So as a third grader, um, the gang life looked very appealing to me because it seemed, they seemed to be have it going on. They seemed to have great connections. And I was a young man who was looking for connection with something. And I was pretty fortunate that my aunt got me involved in basketball and the game of basketball, uh, saved my life what the game of basketball did for me is gave me a chance to dream beyond my circumstances because my circumstances were telling me that I was going to be in prison graveyard or you know you know just in all these negative circumstances at a very early age but that dream of basketball gave me a chance to dream beyond my circumstances which was very very critical for me and at and, and that particular age group as well Cause that dream never left me and you know in seventh grade dr milton and i ended up in a a motel room. we got kicked out of our house in front of all our friends uh ended up in our seventh motel room where we stayed my entire eighth grade year of school and that dream of going on to play professional sports never left me mm-hmm. so i was still striving for it while while living in a motel room with nine people mm-hmm. i was still had that dream of going to the nba or nfl so i kept going ended up getting a scholarship to a private suburban Denver high school after my mother and father and going back to prison again. My grandmother took in, my younger brother and sister and I, and I took three city buses one way to this high school every day in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado, in hopes that I was going to eventually get to the NFL or NBA to live out that dream. Uh, I went to the high school. By my senior year of that high school, my grandmother had developed Alzheimer's disease, had to replace it to a nursing home. And by the end of my senior year of high school, I was uh, actually homeless. Uh, living on sleeping on a fam, family floor of a family friend where I spent the last six months and then eventually left Denver Colorado left Pine points an area that I loved greatly 30 years ago to go play football for the University of Minnesota and I never moved back home
0: okay well that's a lot for us to unpack here so I want to roll <laughs> back just a little bit here so as a as a youngster with you know with the drugs in your neighborhood and your parents arrest do you recall how that made you feel yeah, I, I was a very angry kid, you know, because um one of the things that happened
1: during this time was there was a lot of physical violence from my dad towards my mother, and I become I remember just becoming very very angry at my father for doing my mother like that. Uh, that anger uh, trickled over to the school building where I became a bully in certain instances. Um, I didn't respond well to my teachers. I had a learning disability that you know I didn't know how to cope with at the time. Didn't really know I even had it at the time. So it was a lot of anger. It was a lot of sadness, it was a lot of depression. It was a lot of yearning to connect with something. That's why the gang thing became so appealing because I I, I was looking for that, you know and um,
0: it was something that I wanted. Yeah, so um, so you said you found sports. Is that what kept you out of the gangs or did something Absolutely. else? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, right. and you know, it was, it was very
1: important to me to have a dream that was bigger than my circumstances. And for me, it was only gonna be sports because again, at the time, Uh, growing up in Denver, Colorado, the two perspectives I had of success were the black men who were on the corner and gangs and drugs and stuff like that. And then occasionally I would see the Denver Bronco players who look like me playing on television. So that dream of trying to get there where they were had to supersede the dream that was over the the vision that was over
0: here though. Gotcha. Um, So that was very important to have that. Right. So looking at sports, and I want you to think about it, you know, while you were in, in middle school and high school, not college yet. Well, let's include all of them. What did you draw from athletic, athletics? What yeah, what did you get from athletics?
1: You know, I'll, I'll even go back to when I jumped into basketball in third grade, which was a pretty critical moment. One of the, the first things I got, Dr. Milton, was uh, a, a guy who became kind of a mentor to me. My my basketball coach, A.B. Maxey in Denver, Colorado, became kind of an up, uh, a guy that we began to look up to. The other thing I began to get is I got a connection with a group of guys who had similar goals and dreams to get to the NFL or NBA. Right. And then I had a connection beyond um, what was going on with the, with the gangs. I had that same connection there. So um, that was very, very important for me to have, because um, those are some of the things that draw a lot of kids at that age group into gangs. You know, they, it looks very appealing. They have a lot of older guys who become kind of mentors to them and, um, and then you get a chance to get with a group of guys who have similar goals and dreams, not mm-hmm. often, you know, some of the most positive things, but that draws a lot of people there. So sports became that thing for me and it gave me that. And then over the years what I started to acquire was a great deal of discipline, uh, showing up to the gym early, going there early, uh, staying there later, um, and then just working my butt off to succeed in sports. And it really helped me over the years to become a pretty good athlete.
0: Yeah. So you eventually gravitated toward football. Why football? Why did you make that choice? That's a great question. So the the high school that was
1: recruiting me and my comrades from the inner cities, Mm -hmm. suburban, uh, predominantly white uh, Catholic school in the suburbs, um, they had a great football program. And their program was struggling, but they noticed that in the inner cities, there was a plethora of us who were great athletes, just happened to be basketball players. So the, the, the notion of the coach was, if I can take these basketball players and bring them out to the school to make them football players, we'd dominate. Right. And that's what we did. We, by the time I was a senior in high school, we ranked number three in the country. I think 11 of the guys of the team of 27 went on to play Division one football. So we, we became very, very dominant. Um, so in order to go to that high school out there, long story short, you had to play football. Right. So look, how, how are your academics? <laughs> uh, you know what? That, that's a great question. Academics, uh-huh. I struggle big time. Uh-huh. You know, when I, when I go around the country sharing... I always show my report card my senior year of high school. And I, it was about a one seven, one quarter, 2.0. So it was really, I was really about a C minus student um, struggling. Yes. So, but, but I also tell my kids, though, had I been in a different situation, maybe I would have been a B or A student. I don't know. Right. But there were so many things that were taking place outside of my life that were calling to my attention to that I couldn't really focus on school the way I needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was missing a lot of the, academic skill sets because I had missed so much school as a youngster growing up. You know, I went to five different elementary schools within, actually, I went to four different elementary schools within one year and six different elementary schools by the time I was in sixth grade. So my my academic career was constantly being disrupted by life outside of school. So there were some basic foundational skills that I didn't necessarily have. Um, and I didn't necessarily
0: get until later on. I right. really understood. Um, before we leave high school, I want to ask you another question about sports and football in particular. First of all, what position did you play on the on run- R- running back? Running back. Okay. You know, many of us have never been in a in a huddle. Yeah. You know, and football players, you know, all teams, sports go into a huddle. So take us into one of those huddle experiences that you may find memorable, if if there's any.
1: Yeah. That, you know. what? I've had a chance to be in a lot of huddles over the years, Uh, you know, as a high schooler, you know, we we got a chance to play in front of 10,000 fans as a collegiate athlete. I was playing it to, you know, 115,000 fans in Michigan. So one of the things that really takes place in huddles is it gives you a chance to kind of just calm your nerves, reconnect, see who's with you in the battle, get a game plan, get assurance from your friends, and then you have to go out and execute. So that's one of the greatest things that takes place with a hustle. I mean, uh, in, in a huddle, you get a chance to pause, no matter what took place before with the previous play, whether it was a horrible play or a great play, we're now on to this next play that's going to take place here. I need to see all of my teammates eye to eye to know that we're all in this together. And then when we leave that huddle, I'm trusting and believing that everyone out there is going to go out and execute. They're going to, what they have to do for us to do whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. So, this is yeah. the same thing in life as well. we got to have those people that we can hold around and believe in, our, believe
0: in us and go out and execute. Yeah, that sounds, that's a great principle there that you just shared. Is yeah. that, I mean, we all going to face something in life, but if yeah. you have your team, whatever it is, yes. you said settle down yes. and come up with a plan of action. I like that. I like that. So now, did you, you mentioned the University of Michigan a moment ago, but did you attend Michigan or Minnesota as an undergraduate? University of Minnesota, we, we played,
1: uh-huh. uh, we played at Michigan, I played against Tom Brady when I was actually in college as well. Okay. So, uh-huh.
0: so Yeah, so when, when the University of Minnesota came calling, uh, how did you feel? I mean, take us there, what was your reaction, were there other schools you were looking at, yeah. did you feel ready for this, were you, uh, take us there? Yeah, so it's funny, when University of Minnesota came calling, I went
1: running, I had no <laughs> desire whatsoever to go, to go play in Minnesota, all I knew about Minnesota was it was really cold, mm-hmm. so Uh, uh, Most of my time, I had over 32 scholarships. I was an all-American football player coming out of high school, had 32 scholarship offers. But one of the the school that I committed to, I loved dearly was uh, TCU in Fort Worth, um, uh, Texas. I remember going down there, seeing all the African-Americans doing well. And I was saying, hey, this is where I wanna go to school at. And I had only taken two visits at that particular time. And my coach was like, are you sure you're ready to commit this early? And I was like, yeah. So I I committed to TCU about a month later, The coach left there and went to University of Minnesota, and and Jim Wacker was a great guy, great coach. Uh, Now, now mind you, when I was going through the recruiting process, my mother was in prison, so I was going through this by myself. Um, I was literally taking these trips with no parental guidance, and I was going off of where I had the most fun. Um, And I had the most fun in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, and great guys, and there was a lot of African Americans there, and that's where I wanted to go to school at um, I didn't know much about the academics, I didn't know much about the careers that were going to take place afterwards, but I just knew that I had a great time down there, and there was a lot of African-Americans. So mm-hmm. when the coach left there and went to the University of Minnesota, by that time we had created a bond, and I simply uh,
0: followed him to the University of Minnesota. So that's how I ended up there. I see, yeah. So you, you must have done well academically. At, uh, but first of all, how did your sports career go at Minnesota? Uh, you know, I ended up getting a back injury my junior year after okay. being uh, the MVP of the team, and
1: uh, so it went downhill, and um, um I had to end up turning to academics, though, uh, mm-hmm. to finish off, though. But, right. but in the process, my grades were still not good. Yeah. Um, I was a really good athlete, and um, being a good athlete af- back then superseded, um, and I even say to a degree today, superseded um, a lot of the grades.
0: Yeah, got you. So, but you turned it around. At what point can you remember when you said to yourself, you know, I'm going to turn this thing on? I'm going to apply. Now, can you work us through how you got from where you were and yeah. to where you ultimately got as a doctor? Yeah. So I, it was. It was
1: probably my end into my sophomore
0: year of college.
1: I had been hanging out, having a good time with all my friends. I, I didn't know. I mean, being, it was one thing being an athlete in high school, but it was another level being an athlete in college. I mean, mm-hmm. especially at a Big Ten school, you know, fifty thousand students, and my priorities were were not where they should have been. There was a lot of hanging out, Um, a lot of stuff going on. My grades were. Rarely on the wire, I was barely standing eligible. Had a couple of F's. And I remember the um, athletic director, Dr. McKinley Boston, at the time brought me and one of my teammates in, and he said, "Hey, I'm giving you guys one more chance over the summer to get your grades together, or you guys will not be back in the fall." Mm. And I was saying, "Whoa," and I knew what I had just left in Denver, Colorado. So for me, he didn't have the same thing back to me. He didn't have the same thing else to me, though. I jumped into sessions one and two. I worked my butt off, had the highest GPA I'd ever had at the University of Minnesota. My other comrade, who was a really good friend of mine, great athlete, um, he didn't put forth the effort he needed to. And we came back in the fall. He, he was not there, but I was there. So I, I began to, you know, get a little sense of um, what it was like to be in, in um, just a, a student as well, not just an athlete. But that came home when I was actually after I got hurt. and Once yeah. I got injured... I had to really start thinking about what was life going to be like for me, because, again, I wasn't going back to the environment that I had left in Denver. As a matter of fact, before my injury, I, I was just in a drive-by shooting in Denver where I was almost killed, and I kept telling myself I can't go back to the environment. So after that injury, it's probably the time where it really, really became real to me that I had to leave the University of Minnesota with a degree, and I honed in and get that.
0: Yeah. So uh, I want to isolate that for a moment. Where do you think, because there's a lot happening, I'm going to call it internally, so a lot of happening in you. Where is this coming from, you think? Is it just, I mean, is this external? Is it the injury? Is it the shooting in five points, or where is that coming from for you? It was everything. It was the fear. It was the fear factor. It was all the hungry days and nights I spent growing
1: up in Denver, Colorado. It was the the the, the days and being in the foster home, not knowing where my siblings were. It was the drive by shootings. It was all the uncertainty. It was, it was everything in a nutshell um, that I didn't want to experience again. Yeah, I, I have to get this education again. It went back to again, my early memories. And I didn't necessarily know this at the time, but every time I was able to dream big, I was able to supersede my circumstances. And that, I think that is a very, very important principle people got to get. You could be in any circumstances that, that may be, you know, dire. But if you can get to a place where you can just dream just a little bit bigger than that circumstances, you can do some amazing things. So one of the things I used to do as a kid, I used to be, I tell people, it is very, very important for you to be able to see the there that is there when there is nothing there but you there. <laughs> <I'm a very laughs> time. You have to be able to see the there that is there when there's nothing there but you there. So mm-hmm. as a kid, when I was growing up in five points all these gangs and all the stuff around me were telling me that I was not going to succeed, I would dream every day about being a professional athlete living in a beautiful neighborhood driving a nice car wonderful family so i was constantly doing that when there was nothing in the room but me there wow that's important to be able to do to be get beyond your circumstance so when i was in college and after the injury took place the injury came about what life was going to be like in terms of of having a degree and being able to wear a suit i wanted to wear a suit you know one of the things growing up in denver colorado my mother and father were boosters and shoplifters they would often sell clothing to. The business people in the community and oftentimes these guys would wear these nice suits they would smell good and i would tell myself i want to be like that <laughs> i want to be like that one day yeah. so that was my goal and my dream to be able to wear a nice suit and have on some good smelling cologne well that's fantastic well you're looking
0: good now doctor <laughs> inspiration that's for sure <laughs> so so then but but then getting your undergraduate degree for for the vast majority of college graduates once they get their ba or bs or whatever they stop right if you didn't stop what kept you going yeah.
1: And again, it went back to knowing that I didn't have any safety nets beyond um, anything waiting for me in Denver. So I said, you know, I got to go back and get some more education. So um, I went back and actually I, I, um, I think I got fired from a job first before mm-hmm. I actually went back. But I had been considering going back. But Once I got fired from that job, I said, you know what? I don't want anyone to ever have that type of control over my life again. So I need mm-hmm. to go maximize the education. So it'll give me some additional opportunities. So I went and got my master's. I went back and got my advanced graduate degree. I went back and got my doctorate degree. And I was a principal at the time. and People were saying, you don't need a doctorate degree. You're a principal. I said, nah, for me, I'm going to maximize every piece of education I got. That's to I'm giving yeah. so Yeah. I was always big on options and not just being limited to um, just my bachelor's or my master's. I wanted to be able to apply for any position that I wanted, whether it be the college president. That's not necessarily grant me the chance to get it, though. At least I'll be able to be at a place where I can at least be considered for the position, though.
0: Have you ever regretted investing all of those years into a master's and into a doctorate education? Have you ever had regrets about that?
1: I've never had, because for me, I I always went in with, the. um, once I got fired from my job, I had a plan. And and part of my plan was to maximize education to get me there. So I always saw the education I was obtaining um, was helping me build my business plan for where I was as a doctor, I told mm-hmm. her I recently, well, actually, a couple of years ago, I said, I told her I, I didn't even remember getting my, my master's degree because I was so focused on being doctor. Yeah. So I went through my doctor, I went through my, bachelor, uh, my bachelor's, my master's, my advanced rap degree. I didn't remember those two last two degrees as much as it uh, when when I got the, the doctorate. When I got the doctorate, I was like, this is what I've mm-hmm. been shooting for because there were a couple of things that opened up to me, opened up more doors to me but it also gave me a chance to have a voice where people would listen to me. So I, I'm not an ego driven guy. I don't need you to call me doctor all the time like that. However, I worked hard for it. And definitely, you know, in the places where I need to be called doctor, I, I, I want that to take place. However, um, it also gave me a chance to go back and inspire our young people in terms of what they can do. I remember I was in Omaha, Nebraska, a couple of years ago I was speaking at this prison and I was talking to a bunch of gang members and one of the gang members, he said, I get it now. He said, You doctor, but you sound like the homies. I can do that. I said, You darn right you can do it. I said, There's nothing stopping you. Yeah. So they, they were able to bridge the gap that I was from the same place they were at, but also had to obtain the, uh, the amount of education that was, you know, an ed- education that only 2% of people had, and that it was still doable for them as well if you wanted right. to accomplish it. That's yeah. what I wanted to see. Yeah,
0: yeah. gotcha. So what was it like? Of uh, being principal of a school, high school in Minnesota. What was it like for you? I was at your what were your students like and how did you work with them? And yeah. yeah. I was at the
1: elementary school level. It was a, a great, I mean, you know, I'd worked really, really hard to um to become a school principal. I had a school that was low income in Brooklyn uh, Park, Minnesota. Uh, loved, I mean, I loved this, I love my students, I love the family. So I was a principal who went above and beyond my work. So I was a principal who went to the backyard barbecues, went to the birthday parties on the weekends. I was out um, canvassing the community, knocking on doors before I actually stepped foot in the principal's office, just getting to know the community and what have you. Um, so my, my family's students were great. Um, one of the challenges I faced was I brought in this great diverse staff. My first year as a principal, the second year, due to budget cuts in the district, that budget cuts in the district, I lost a third of my staff Ooh. and had obtained a, staff that was giving to me um, that I inherited that did not wanna work with the kids and families that I've been working with and worked so hard to establish with that it became a great fight over the next four years and I was a principal there. Um, and then eventually, you know, having my superintendent, uh, my, my supervisor tell me to acquiesce to some of the low standards that they were having for kids and everything else, I said, I, you know, I eventually said, you know, I'm I'm gonna leave and just do my own thing and and do something from the outside. But um, Mm. my time there, I I had a significant impact. I'm really close with the, and this wasn't all my staff. It was just, you know, a few of them that made it really, really tough. But I'm I'm good friends with a lot of my, you know, former staff members, family members. Uh, I see a lot of my students doing well to this day. Um, A lot of them reach out to me. In fact, a lot of them are uh, parents and everything today. And they reach out to me on Facebook saying, hey, Dr. Watson, I still remember when you were telling us to do blah, 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 you know, so it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So I think I had the impact that I needed to have. Uh, I wish I could have stayed longer. However, I think God had a plan for me to to take that message and those things that I was doing and do them on a broader
0: scale, which I'm doing now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in a high school or in a school, in a public school, does the school have a duty to make sure that children are safe? And you know, not free from, but should be free from bullying and intimidation. Does the school have that obligation?
1: Absolutely. I think, I think as adults, we all have that obligation to deal with any kids, whether it be in the school or a church or yeah. that workplace in our community. I think we should all have that uh, responsibility kind of placed on our shoulders. In our schools, we definitely have it because you know those kids are with us six hours a day. We want to make sure that those kids are feeling safe, they're feeling encouraged, they're feeling like, they're feeling hopeful, um, you know that they can achieve their goals and dreams. And the funny thing about my school, we only had one suspension the entire year. Um, I was I was kind of like Joe Clark. I loved on my students during the day. I was really tough on them, but in the beginning of the school day, every student who came in my building seven hundred kids received the high five from Doctor Watson. On the way out, no matter what they did or didn't do, they received a high five on the way home from Doctor Watson with encouragement to come back and do a, do it better the next day. So I was a, a principal that was really beloved by the students and families. Um, And and the vast majority of my teachers as well. I mean, that little group of uh, educators who made it tough for me, their issue was, they didn't want to go above and beyond like I was asking for, uh, for our students, which made their jobs difficult and made mine as difficult as well, because I wasn't going to back up on
0: uh, the fact those kids could achieve. Right. So what would you say to a parent today, Mm -hmm. who says that, you know, she sends her kid to school, and her kid comes back and report that she has been bullied, that she has been threatened, you know, by someone that they were going to kill her, and the school took no action. What would you say to a parent in that situation?
1: Well, well the first of all, before we get there, I tell all parents you got to make sure you're being involved. Don't just simply send your kids to school, whether it be high school, middle school, elementary school, and 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 don't make a connection with the educators. You you should be you should know who your 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 child's teachers are. Um, come by, visit, give some time if you can to the school, so that other people are involved. Uh, go to the events beyond the school. So you're getting to make a uh, connection with the community as well. And then when you are hearing things take place with your child, because you, you got to stay in the loop with your kids as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes kids are being bullied. They may shut down. You got to watch for those behaviors where their behaviors are starting to become a little bit abnormal from what they normally are. And then once you find out what's going on, uh, I think it's it's very, very pertinent that you then go right to that school and start the conversation with the principal and getting the teachers involved as well. Now the school is not going to tell you in terms of what action they're going to take against the bully, because that's, that's confidential information, mm-hmm. but you have to be just be assured that the student, that, that the school is going to do their due diligence and make sure that there's going to be an environment where all students are successful as well. Because again, the other thing is with the bully, sometimes we want to cast them off to the pits of hell, but those kids uh-huh. tend to be great kids as well, but they've had, they've gone through some circumstances that have, convince them that being the bully is the best way to get the attention. So we have to kind of reframe their brains to say, "Hey, you know, there's other ways you can get attention other yeah. than, you know, putting your hands or making fun of other kids. So we want to be able to create reform where we're not simply casting those kids away either, but also make sure all kids in the environment are going to be safe.
0: Indeed. Yeah. The bully in many ways is a victim as well. a victim of something that we may not know about. Very good. So now you made the shift to becoming a professional speaker tell us about that journey to becoming a speaker.
1: Yeah, well, I would say before I even made that shift, um, I actually got fired from the job originally when I got out of college. I actually went to work with McDonald's Corporation for two years. I got fired from a job where I I didn't have, I was told I didn't have leadership skills, so I went to work with McDonald's Corporation, worked there two years, great job, probably one of the best jobs I ever had in my life, uh, working in their global management training program, ended up winning their leadership award, and then went into the school system as well. So when it came to making the transition to being an entrepreneur and having a business where part of what I do is speaking, um, I relied on a lot of the skill sets that I gotten from working at McDonald's Corporation. Mm-hmm. But one of the best pieces of advice I received before I jumped out there, I, I reached out to a number of uh, speakers who I admired. And one of the best pieces of advice a, a hall of fame speaker had given me, Desi Williamson. I, I love this guy, played football for the University of Minnesota. He said, "Tommy." do not just become a speaker. He said, become a businessman who does speaking. I said, wow, that's pretty profound. Yeah, My business is called TA Watson speaking, coaching and consulting. So I did not just rely on speaking. So over the years, speaking is just a part of what I do. I'm also an author. I'm also an educator. I do consulting. I do executive coaching. I have written a movie and, and, and recently became a movie producer and even became a
0: rapper here recently as well. So, <laughs> oh, that's great income. Yes. Yeah. Well, we can, we can look at each one of those. Yes. So let's talk about the movie Resilience. Is that the title of it? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, you know, tell us about that. Yeah. So, the, the,
1: the movie kind of um, evolved from my book, A Face of Courage. A mm-hmm. Face of Courage was a book that I written after college. Uh, mainly because I wanted to get some stuff off my chest. It wasn't because I had any expectations of the book doing well or being turned into a movie or or you know being a, an award-winning book or anything like that. I just wanted to get some stuff off my chest. And I, in doing so, it became very therapeutic for me and it became very helpful for other individuals who had gone through or needed some encouragement as well. Um, but I also found that there are another segment of people out there who don't necessarily like reading books. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, how can I also get a message across to those individuals? So speaking became an opportunity for that, but also a movie. Um, so back in 2018, I wrote a short film about my um, story and kind of a proof of concept of, of the story, produced it, and it's won eight awards uh, around the globe here. Now, we're currently working in a feature movie um, that we're looking to raise funds for and have produced uh, next year as well. So everything started with the book, The Face of Courage, and just simply just trying to you know, get some stuff off my shoulders. I believe everyone has a story to tell. And there's a lot of people out there who has
0: stories that can can sell mm-hmm. want and need to hear what it is you have to offer. Okay. So I want to come back to Resilient, the movie. But well, you mentioned Face of Courage, the Tommy Watson story. So, what messages did you want to convey in this book? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a lot of different messages. There were the messages
1: of, of the importance of family, the message of importance of, 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 uh, having courage, um, facing courage. You know, I took a civil rights class when I was in college that had a profound impact on me. Um, Had a chance to see a lot of the struggles of of leaders who were facing very, very difficult times and how they stood face-to-face with those individuals who were trying to take their lives and the great courage that it took for them to do that. And that's why I came up with the name for my book, A Face of Courage, Um, but over the years, you know, When I was writing, I thought about the relationships I had with my siblings. I I mean, my siblings are very, very close. You know, our older sister, Melinda, passed away last year. Mm sorry, cancer. But she was amazing. She was a, even though she was a drug addict, she was an amazing factor in our lives. She was like that mother figure to us when we were kids. She was the one who stayed home with my baby sister. Mm -hmm. I went to school and um, everything like that. So she was amazing. My grandmother was amazing. I had a high school teacher who was amazing, uh, Sister Brendan. Um, so I've had a lot of folks in relationships that were very amazing out there. So there were a number of, of, uh, messages that were conveyed, you know, the importance of family, the more importance of having faith and hope, because sometimes we minimize the power of hope. And again, it goes back to hope is really about what I talked about before having a dream that supersedes your circumstances. When you can have only positive expectations, that's the, that's the acronym I use for hope have only positive expectations you can win. Matter of fact, there was a, a gentleman I, I was doing a course for parents in Omaha, Nebraska, who just reached out to me on Facebook. I did the course with him probably about five years ago. And he said, have only po- positive expectations. Dr. Watson, I still remember. I said, that's uh-huh. what I'm talking about. So when you have those moments, I want to tell people through the book that no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, you got to keep believing that things are going to get better. And there are going to be some dark nights. There are going to be some valleys that are going to seem un- unobtainable in terms of coming out of, but you can do it. But it's a matter of taking one step at a time and having the courage to continue to believe and then having the courage to connect with other people because you can't do it by yourself. You got to be able to connect with other people. You got to become a dreamer. You got to go out there and get the information you need. You got to be willing to invest back in other people as you're doing it. Because sometimes when we come out of those valleys, we just say, you know, it's all about me. But sometimes there's a person right behind you that needs some encouragement as well. So Sometimes you got to take the focus off yourself and say, OK, who around me needs some of this same uh, uplift and, uh, and encouragement as well. Though, So um, it's very, very important that you're climbing and striving to be that person that you recognize that there are other people who need help as well. So face of courage. I wanted to do that, uh, but it gave me a chance to also um, kind of go through a lot of the things that I went through in my life and, uh, and be, um, became very therapeutic to me and also help other people in the, in the process So, of
0: healing and helping it took place as well. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that it was a therapeutic experience and that yeah. we're able to do some healing because, you know, there are some adult children, actually, uh, who have gone through stuff in their lives with their parents who have trouble, who carry that baggage yeah. into old age. So how did you deal with, let me throw out some words, how did you deal with forgiveness? Yeah. How did you deal with compassion? Yeah. Uh, and how did you heal? Yeah, yeah, very- especially in relationship, Dr. Watson, to your, to your parents? Yeah. Absolutely. So I would say my
1: mother, we had a conversation before she passed away about 20 years ago. And I remember my mother, she had heard that I was doing a book and she didn't necessarily want to tell me not to do the book, but she didn't necessarily encourage me to do it as well. So she kind of, but she heard that we had been in foster homes. And I remember we had a conversation. She said, you hadn't been in foster homes before. And I said, whoa, are you serious? (laughs) Wow. But the way she remembered things was, we were at home. Her and my dad went out. They went to jail. She ended up retrieving us from my grandmother or my aunt. And I had to talk her through the process. I said, before we got to my grandmother or my aunt, we had to go to the, the, the crisis center or the, or the kids home, and then we were selected by a foster parent to go with them. And then my grandmother or my aunt would retrieve us, and then you guys would come back along. I said we were definitely in foster homes. We went through a lot, and I think it hurt her to hear that we had gone through so much because she was simply thinking that we were just being retrieved from the house where we were abandoned at. And my, my mother were, my, my grandmother were retrieving us. I said, that was a whole process we had to go through. Um, but I forgave her though. Yeah. My father, it was probably a little bit more difficult too because all the physical violence and manipulation that took place But I eventually got to a place where I forgave him too. Because one of the things when you write a book you have to become all the characters in the book. You don't simply write a book and the person's there to talk you, you through or write their piece in the book you have to become that person. And if you're going to write a book that's going to be effective, you can't simply leave people at a place where they're hanging on all this negative stuff. You have to take them to a place which each episode is giving a lesson and an upbeat message, but continues to keep the story moving along as well. So I had to do that when I was writing the book. You know, I couldn't simply slam my father, my mother for doing everything they were doing, had to dive back into their backgrounds as well, because there was some things they were missing as well. um, That they had some gaps in their parenting that they came to the table with um, no parent, no matter what their situation is, whether it be drug addict or mental health issues, no parent wants to abandon their kid and make their kid feel hopeless and, and not be successful in life. I think every parent who has a child wants to see their child do great. However, there's the want to, and then there's the actual skill sets that it takes to make it happen. And if you don't know, necessarily know how or who to connect with to get those skill sets uh, filled, become this huge gap and unfortunately in many situations the kid doesn't
0: get what they need
1: but i don't think it's because the intention of the parent was to ever see their kid fail
0: right that reminds me of something that the reverend jesse jackson said back in the day he said you can't teach what you don't know yes and you can't lead where you don't go So, so yeah so back to resilient the movie what do you and by the way, is the movie completed now or is it still in process?
1: Yeah, so the short film has been completed now. The the feature film we're hoping to start production on next next year. We're in the fundraising stage of it now. So if anyone is interested in being one of the funders, reach out to me at tawatson.com. But we're in the process of raising the money so we can bring on a, a great a great crew um and produce a very you know quality. Yeah. Uh, inspirational movie that will rival Blindside and Pursue the Happiness out there as well.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm not sure if you want to devote this or so not, but I got to ask you who do you want to play, T.A. Watson? <laughs> well, you know, um, there's a lot of great characters out
1: there. Let me start with my mother character first because okay. the, my mother's gonna play a great role in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to see Jennifer Hudson or Beyonce play that role. I mean, oh, that's I'm wonderful. Yeah. Uh, the one for me, I think Ice Cube Son would be a great uh, person to get out there. Um, a lot of young, young, young talent out there, but um, yeah. I'm gonna rely on my production company and my director to find those folks because I'm not necessarily in the in the know with a lot of those uh, talent uh, uh, that I should you know be knowing, but yeah. they're in the industry. So yeah. uh, definitely would love to have Jennifer Hudson in there, and then we'll see. I was gonna say Denzel, but Denzel. It would be a, a much older version of me. He can't. Right. I, I that. Yeah, that's <laughs> exciting. That
0: I mean, that just hearing it that sounds very exciting. I, I'm sure that motivates you. What you're Absolutely. doing with exactly. this story. So let me ask you this: So you mentioned Jennifer Hudson and Beyonce to play your mother. Did your mother sing? You know, my mother did not sing. Mm-hmm. But I thought about these two
1: women. Jennifer Hudson is from the inner cities of Chicago. Um, many of the roles that she's played in the past have been very clean. um mm-hmm. It, it great great roles for, but this may be a role that may be very, very appealing for her to come back and play because it's it's a person who she's probably grown up seeing a lot in the cities of Chicago. Uh, same thing with Beyonce. It'd be giving them a chance to kind of expand their repertoire in terms of yeah. what they've been yeah. involved in, but also be involved in a in a in a movie of redemption. And that's inspiration inspirational. And one thing about inspirational movies, they seem to be they, they tend to be timeless, universal and they're transferable. So Blind Side is a movie that's still talked about, you know, you know, you're talking about over 10 years ago, you know, yeah. Pursuit happened the same thing. Every time I see those movies, I have the same feelings of inspiration that I had the first time I actually observed it as well. So I want people to have the same feeling when they think about resilient. And when people start talking about messages of hope, I want people to say, hey, you need to go see that movie Resilient. Yeah, yeah. It, it'll get you fired up, you know? Because one thing about the movie that's going to be quite different from the other movies, it's going to really showcase. I tell people there's a difference between growing up in poverty and growing up dealing with homelessness. And what they're going to see in the movie is what it's like to grow up being homeless in the United States of America, the richest country in the world. And you start seeing the differences. There's a big difference between growing up um, in poverty and growing up homeless here um, in America.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, you also wrote the book, The Resilience of Champions. What do you do in this book? Yeah. So, you know, over the years, people always
1: want, they always ask me, okay, what did you learn from growing up in that situation? So I I picked out six habits of resiliency that I kind of learned and adopted um, over the years growing up in that situation. Some of the other struggles I I took and they became principles for um, my my book, The Resilience of Champions. So all six of them laid out but this, the, there also comes through the stories of my time at McDonald's Corporation. McDonald's was a very important part of my um, um, professional career. Mm-hmm. As I just, like I mentioned before, I just got fired uh, from a job because I didn't have leadership skills. And McDonald's was saying, hey, come on in. We will teach you those skills. So they gave me a chance to learn on the job, uh, make errors. I uh, taught me how to develop people, train people, run a, a multi-million dollar business, all on their dime. And it just became a, a great source of, of resiliency for me. You know, and you look at the stories of Ray Kroc, I, I talk about Ray Kroc and Oprah Winfrey and another a number of other famous folks out there who have had to adopt these same principles in order to be successful. One of the principles I talk about over and over again in the book was the principle of uh, sometimes when we're going through tough times, yeah. it's very, very easy to start looking at all the things that are going right, wrong. But in the book I talk about, in the midst of challenges, and this was amazing because I was going through a divorce at the time, I was being sued, I was in a new city, my kids were struggling, I had to use this one principle. What is the one thing that's going well right now? So sometimes when you're going through your darkest moments, you have to identify the one thing that you can hold on to. It may be as small as, I'm just simply opening my eyes up every morning. That may give you the courage you need to keep taking the next steps to the next victory, to the next victory, to the next victory. Because again, what you focus on grows. So if you focus on all the negativity around you, it's going to simply grow. Mm -hmm. So focus on the one thing that's going right. That one thing becomes two things, becomes three things, becomes eventually four things. And before you know it, you're not even focusing on the things that aren't going well anymore. You're focusing simply on what's going right. And I tell people, it's a matter of being deciding in life are you going to be the thermostat or the thermometer? (laughs) So so the, the, the thermometer kind of adjusting becomes whatever environment it is. So if negative is going on around you, things aren't going well, you focus on those things. Mm. But thermostat says, Hey, I'm going to set the tone. I'm not going for that. I'm going to have a dream bigger than this right here. I'm going to keep going. If you're going to be in my life, here's what you're going to talk about. Here's what you're going to dream about. Here's what you're going to focus on. And you just become that person to get to your goals and dreams. So that's what I had to do in those moments. And that's what resilience of champions kind of pushes people to do. Say, hey, if you're going to become a great leader of an organization, you got to dream beyond your circumstances. You're going to yeah. become a great leader of your own individual life. You've got, you got to become
0: a great leader and, and dreamer beyond your circumstances. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Uh, that kind of reminds me, and I want you to re- uh, reflect on this, this for me, of uh, a book title of uh, Dr. Robert Schuler, Sr. And the title of the book is Tough Times Don't Last. Tough people do. Absolutely. Does that title resonate with you in any way, Dr. Watson? Absolutely. You know, I, I'm a big
1: fan that sometimes we learn more from adversity than we do from, from winning. Uh-huh. And in the game of sports, um, when it, we take the NFL, for example, most teams want to lose before they get to the playoffs. That hmm. simply winning, going through a whole season undefeated, sets you up to be unsuccessful when you get to the playoffs. One of the things, the great things that happens when you're losing, in most situations, you should be learning. Yeah. So when you ask yourself, what am I learning from this situation? What am I learning from this situation? It gives you a chance to get better. Okay. So those people, what we call tough people, those tough times, they're usually asking the question, what did I learn from the situation? What yeah. can I do better? What am I going to do differently next time? So it sets you up to be stronger and more resilient. Yeah. What about our plight as African-Americans in this country, I compared to two people running a race. You have one person, you know, they're on, on their side of the race. They get a chance to have a straight shot to the finish line.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: The other person has to go through a, an Ironman course. We have to jump over barbed wire, gunder fences, jump over crocodiles, run through mud. Um, the person who had it easy, what did they learn from their, from their journey? Probably not much. Yeah. The person who had to jump over the wires and go into the other things, they became a lot stronger and more resilient. So there is a resiliency that is built from trials and tribulations that you have to learn to embrace because once you get to victory, if you don't know how to look back and say, wow, I remember when I was in that valley, I learned this, this, and this, your ability to sustain success becomes very dwindled down. That's why a lot of people who win the lottery and all those things like that, don't keep the money long because they didn't go through a process of trials and tribulations to obtain it. They just simply you know, lose it. But when you okay. go through trials and tribulations, you, you definitely have the grit to keep it.
0: Yeah, the lottery mindset, that's for sure. Absolutely. One last question for you. When did the moniker, Dr. Inspiration, come your way? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, So
1: well before I became a doctor, um, I began to, it goes back to the piece about dreaming. So I'm in the movie industry and there, there's a, there was a study done by researchers on the brains of actors. And what they said was they hooked, up MRI, they hooked up MRI machines to the brains of actors. And what they found was that when the actors were in character, they actually, their brains actually changed. They became someone else, not just physically, but mentally as well. So when I began to call myself Dr. Inspiration, I became that doctor well before I physically had the title. So there is something that great that takes place when you begin to speak it into existence. The Bible says the power of life and death is in the tongue. That is literally so true because what we speak, we're going to become. And when you look at one of the principles, there are a lot of principles that successful people have in common, but the most common principle that's shared among successful people is they all believe that they could be, they they all visualize themselves already obtaining their level of success before it ever came to fruition physically. So mentally they were already there. They experienced it every day. They would see it every day. They would smell it every day, even though it wasn't there physically. So by the time it became physical, they had already been there in that process and it became a backwards a situation of backwards design. So I became a, began to call myself doctor well before I actually had the physical title. I was doctor 10 years prior to that. So doctor inspiration
0: was my route. Yes. That's, a, that's awesome. Yes. That's awesome. Well, doctor inspiration, this is a great place to, to stop. I just want to thank you for sitting with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: I appreciate you having me. And again, for those folks out there listening, remember victory always goes to the person who stay strong enough long enough. Don't stop fighting, don't stop believing in your dreams, dream bigger than your circumstances. Remember that success and failure are a
0: circle. They are not opposites. You need both to succeed and do well. Fantastic. There you have it. You've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Our guest today has been Dr. Tommy Watson, AKA Dr. Inspiration. Until next time, good day.